Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're not Ben. No, I'm not. And you're not Susan. No. You're not Tammy. No. Who am I? Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the No Way Huawei edition. I know who I am. I'm Shane Harris, but I'm here in the Jungle Studio with a totally new crew. We're here today. It is an all-lawfare powerhouse edition. I'm here with Quinn Jurassic, Scott Anderson, and Margaret Taylor. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. We have Hello. overthrown Ben, Susan, and Tammy. They're tied up in a cellar. In a bloodless coup. <laughs> yeah. I prefer no, a Lord of Flies situation. That's how I like to think of it. Uh, no, they are all away someplace, scattered to the winds, some abroad, some near abroad. No one in Ukraine, as far as I know. They live very glamorous lives. They live very glamorous lives, but we are here and we get to do the podcast. And I'm so glad you guys are doing this with us. Scott, you've been on before, but Margaret, this is your first time on Rational Security. It is, and I'm so honored. That's great. You're going to drop some Congress knowledge on yes. us today. Yes, there's <laughs> very, plenty of that to go around. Very exciting. Um, before we get into this week, there was so much that we, we can only pick three stories, but we're going to try and get to as much as we can. Uh, we are away next week, just a little housekeeping, so enjoy your Memorial Day. A vacation. Uh, this week, though, on the podcast, the Trump administration moves to block a Chinese telecom giant. White House counsel Don McGahn is a no-show at a congressional hearing. And the president is considering pardons for military service members convicted of murder and other crimes. Um, let's start with the big news on uh, the Huawei front. Uh, this week, Scott, the administration announced a number of different measures, one explicitly aimed at essentially blocking U.S. firms from doing business with Huawei, which is the huge Chinese telecom giant and the world's largest telecom equipment maker, and then also releasing this executive order that gives the president the ability to declare a national emergency and expand his powers to protect communications networks. So sort of set the scene for us here. How extraordinary are these actions and how does this fit? with the the long-running concerns that the U.S. has had about Huawei and the threat that it could pose to national security. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are two pretty major steps. I think they're steps we've seen discussed and debated uh, over the last year or so, maybe a little bit more, that these concerns have percolated regarding Huawei. But the fact they're taking them both now, also in the midst of a stall of trade talks with China, which is important context for this, is pretty notable. Really, the more notable one is the one that's gotten a little bit less attention. And that's the addition of Huawei to the what's called entity list that the mm. Department of Commerce maintains. The blacklist. Exactly. And it is a blacklist. Essentially, it is saying this is a foreign entity that we believe is contrary to U.S. interests. And therefore, it's very difficult to export a variety of material and equipment to that company, in particular, 
lots of software, lots of sort of telecommunications, uh, equipment services, things like that. Uh, and so adding Huawei to the entity list makes its business very difficult. We've seen already that Google stopped temporarily providing services to Huawei and Huawei phones and other entities because of this restriction. Since then, the Department of Commerce has actually issued a 90-day kind of stay of the imposition of the consequences of being on the entity list. They're still on the list, but they paused them for 90 days to allow for a transition period. So that's a pretty notable and major development, although at least according to Huawei people, they knew it was a possibility for a while and have been kind of preparing for it. The executive order is a is something a little different. It's, I think of it a little bit as a shot across the bow. Mm. It would set up a pretty aggressive regime that would allow the Department of Commerce, along with input with input from other federal agencies, to basically stop U.S. companies from being able to use various types of foreign telecommunications equipment uh, and dealing with certain foreign telecommunications companies. It's doing so under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, or IEPA. It's the same law from the 70s that the president uses to install terrorism-related sanctions, sanctions regarding nuclear weapons, sanctions regarding Iran in many cases, although not exclusively. And they're using the same thing here to say we're blocking all transactions with these foreign entities that we think qualify. They haven't implemented it yet. They haven't set up the process, but this is kind of the opening shot saying we intend to do that down the road and what could be a pretty severe step, um, although also one that seems likely to incur a variety of types of legal challenges. It will be a new regime. Quinto, one of the things that struck me about this, I mean, when we, we reported some months ago, maybe it was last year even at the Post, that this executive order was being drafted and it just seemed like such an extreme intervention by the executive over basically, you know, commerce. Now, we all understand there's this concern that Huawei could be essentially a conduit for China to conduct surveillance into the networks where it's implanted. So there's there's a concern there that the intelligence community has raised and other countries have raised. But this just seems like you know a a fairly uh, extraordinary, I don't know if it's unprecedented measure that we kind of it almost struck me as something you would imagine in wartime uh, doing. Did, it, what, what strikes you about kind of the legal footing on this and how do you fit it within the Trump administration's positions towards China over the past couple of years? So to begin with, I think it's notable that one of these actions was taken, as Scott said, through the National Emergencies Act, which got a lot of play, I don't know, a couple months ago now when Trump uh, declared a, a national emergency along the southern border in order to justify securing funding for the wall. And when that happened, there was a lot of, you know, rending of hair over what it meant that the president was declaring an emergency and that this was unprecedented and maybe it was the beginning of martial law. And of course, none of that turned out to be the case, though I don't think it was a good idea. I think the the use of this again for the Huawei case brings home two points. One is that presidents declare emergencies all the time, Right. And the other is that just because they <laughs> declare them all the time doesn't mean that that's not a power that we should be con- we shouldn't be considering critically. As you say, it is an incredibly broad scope of powers. It's pretty incredible that we've ended up in this position where the president is able to take such action without Congress weighing in at all. And if you look at this in connection with the National Emergencies Act, if you're someone who is more in favor of restraining executive power, you could certainly look at these two examples and say, oh, my gosh, like we've really gotten out over our skis here. Margaret, what about the Congress piece of this? I mean, this is – I mean, did, did they have a role here and are we seeing any kind of pushback as the administration takes these actions? So 
They don't have a role in the sense that the International Emergency Economic Powers Act doesn't require Congress to come and you know ratify anything. The president has these authorities. He can do it. In terms of pushback, I am not seeing it. Oh, if it's there, I missed it. And I think that there's actually a fair amount of consensus, I would say, on Capitol Hill on the China issue at this moment. It's just in terms of China being an actual com- a competitor, uh, potentially you know a threat. And I don't see, even on the Democratic side of the aisle, a lot of pushback on these on these actions. So, you know, again, there's consensus there. I do just want to point out one thing. There is an even bigger hammer out there that is also derived from this same International Emergency Economic Powers Act, which would be a designation on the uh, specially designated nationals list. And so just because we're all legal nerds here, I just want to point out the difference. So being on the specially designated nationals list means that any Amer- all Americans, anyone in America- in U.S. jurisdiction couldn't have any kind of transaction with the target. The commerce entity list is is more limited, but still devastating for, for, for business transactions for Huawei. But it is limited to exports, re-exports, or transfers of items that are regulated by the Export Administration regulations. So, you know, it, it's not the biggest hammer out there, but it is certainly a big one. So I wonder if they're holding it in reserve. Well, I think the executive order is a step to, to find a medium-sized hammer, essentially. Huh. Uh, it would install a lot of the consequences of kind of being on the SDN list, but it applies to a kind of subset of transaction. It focuses on telecommunications technology, not Huawei necessarily writ large, although it is a telecommunications company. So probably a big part of it would kind of fall under a part of that. But it stops short of going so far as putting on the SDN list alongside again, terrorist groups or other major kind of negative actors that they target. And I think one thing that's worth bearing in mind about Congress on this is that when the National Emergency Act and IEPA were written, there was a role for Congress. You have to – the president could enact a national emergency under the National Emergency Act. That would trigger IEPA and allow them to do stuff like this. And Congress was supposed to be able through a concurrent resolution, I believe it was, revoke that and say, we don't like this national emergency. We're going to pull it back. Um, But since 1983, the Supreme Court has said that that's unconstitutional. And they subsequently amended the National Emergency Act to require that action only by joint resolution meaning it goes to the president for a veto. So Congress can really only overrule the president if they can override the veto in this case. So it makes it much harder. Um, And we saw that in play in the wall discussions uh, that Quinta mentioned, where Congress did actually take the vote on this and was stopped eventually in the president's first veto, I believe. And presumably, you go the same place here, except you know the, the dynamics of congressional opposition just aren't the same. Well, and it's like, yeah, like you said, Margaret, too, there are Democrats and Republicans both in Congress who do think Huawei poses a potential security threat. I, I wonder, do you guys think this is genuinely being driven by national security concerns or is the Trump administration primarily viewing this as another tool to use in the trade war? And implicitly, the suggestion, I guess, and that would be we could always withdraw this or not enforce it if you do the kinds of things that we want on the trade front. I think that's the fact that we have to ask that question is itself concerning. It brings me back to the arrest of Meng Wanzhou the Huawei leader who was arrested in Canada at the U.S. request that there was this flurry of questions in Western media and from China basically suggesting, does this have anything to do with the ongoing trade negotiations? And President Trump threw fuel on that fire by suggesting exactly that, I'm sure, to the displeasure of everyone at the Justice Department. And so 
even though the intelligence community leadership has been really persistent in trying to drive home that they do see China as a huge threat, they see Huawei specifically as a huge threat, both the sort of parallel track of the trade negotiations and, frankly, the president's own lack of discipline in keeping those two things separate makes it really, really hard to distinguish between the two. I think that, you know, on Capitol Hill, going forward, and this is related, the questions that at least Democrats will, I think, be asking about both the broader tariffs and trade war, this action, all these related actions, there is concern about the Trump administration's ability to turn leverage into outcomes. And so the question will be, what is the strategy? How does this end? What does it look like beyond just the punishment phase. And that is where, in my opinion, the Trump administration has really struggled. So we saw that on North Korea, where there was all this sort of leverage created with tweets and with uh, economic sanctions. But in the end, there wasn't really any deal that came together. And so I think on Capitol Hill, those are the types of questions that will be asked going forward. Where's this going? What's the strategy? How does it end? Or is this just, you know, an effort to sort of demonize China almost in the run-up to the 2020 elections, and with that as a political tool. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the the real question that gets raised by this is less the measures themselves, but the timing. We know there are national security concerns around Huawei. They've been talked about for a while. We saw Congress adopt restrictions on the use of Huawei and for federal government, federal contractor purposes in the last NDAA. These measures have been talked about for a while, particularly the executive order, I think has been cooked up for almost a year in theory. But they're being released now when we see the trade talks stall. And it does make you question a little bit whether even if there is a legitimate national security, it's being used as a bit of a pretext to get this additional negotiations leverage. And I think it's worth noting also the NEA and the IEPA can be used not just for national security emergencies, but also for economic emergencies. They're very powerful, very open-ended toolkit. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure it's totally unfeasible that we'll see additional efforts to use it that toolkit to gain additional leverage like this in the future, maybe even more direct ways without the sort of element of pretext, now that they're willing to kind of cross that Rubicon in this one spot. Just as we tie this up, Quinta, there's another aspect to this too, which is there's an international dimension. Not all of our allies see Huawei precisely the way we do. I'm thinking mainly here of the Brits who – I don't think well, – they may see it as a potential national security threat, although they're willing to try and manage that. But they also understand that Huawei is poised to build a global 5G telecom infrastructure, which presumably they would also like to take advantage of. So this puts them in this position, doesn't it, where you know, our security interests usually are so aligned with the British. But here they find ourselves increasingly probably in opposition to what we're doing because this is such a, maybe an extreme measure and they just don't see Huawei through the same lens that we do. That's right. And I think I believe New Zealand has also indicated that they're willing to go forward with implementing Huawei technology. And so there's this really interesting dimension where the U.S. is coming down really hard on this. And at the same time, it seems to be splintering the Five Eyes Alliance, again, at a time when that alliance is maybe on shakier ground than it's been in a long time, not to keep beating a dead horse, but because of the president and because of the president's insistence on beating up on foreign intelligence agencies when it's politically convenient. Yeah. And I, and I wonder here, too, whether we've always had these questions about whether there would be a moment, and maybe we're having it with Iran, 
where the president who has been so ferocious in his attacks on the intelligence community would have to come to the American people and say intelligence shows us that there is a threat in this country and whether they would believe him. I'm not sure we're quite there with the Huawei thing but it does make me wonder if some, maybe some of these allies are questioning, you know, if not the credibility of the, of the assessment that Huawei poses a threat, very much thinking like why now? You seem to be doing this largely for political reasons and, you know, it's a trade war and we're in the middle of it. Uh, all right. Well, speaking of people who are in the middle of it, Don McGahn, you remember him. That's, that's a good transition. <laughs> you like that one? I got a review on the podcast, by the way. There was somebody who gave us a rating who said, I love the podcast, but your transitions are tortured. Stop it. <laughs> that's for you, whoever you are. But thanks for your five-star rating. Um, at least I think it was five stars. We'll pretend it was. So, Margaret, Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, got a subpoena uh, to show up. And basically, this is part of, I think, uh, House Democrats' effort to lay out the facts that are in the Mueller report for which Don McGahn was really kind of the key fact witness. I forget how many times he uh, appears in the report itself, but he does kind of come out as one of the narrative protagonists in this. Ultimately, the White House I'm not clear did they forbid him from going or suggest that they would like him not to go. Um, you know, what's the status and why didn't he show up and where does this kind of put us in this standoff that Congress is having with the executive over uh, demands for all kinds of information? So I think technically they directed him not to go. Uh, but I do think there is this question of what that means actually for Don McGahn, if Don McGahn actually wanted to go. Um, which I don't think he particularly does. But if he did, um, you know, what would be the consequence of that if he did? I think there's some question actually about what the status of any potential sort of legal action against him would be. Um, but just to back up a little bit. So as you said, the uh, Judiciary Committee did subpoena the former White House counsel to appear before the committee this week. He didn't show up. Uh, and that followed a May 20th Justice Department Office of Legal Counsel memo advising the White House Counsel's Office of its view that Congress may not constitutionally compel McGahn to testify. And the basis or the legal reasoning in that memo, it's not exactly executive privilege. At least that's not what they call it. It's a different concept called uh, testimonial immunity. And this is – I have been trying to get – Testimonial immunity. Testimonial immunity. And it – That sounds good. I want that. <laughs> you probably, not the you only probably won't get it. That <laughs> sounds like it could come in real handy sometime. <laughs> well, we'll see you know, who it comes in handy for. Um, the, the case for this testimonial immunity doctrine is strongest, I think, with someone like Don McGahn. So what, what is this thing, testimonial immunity? This is really an executive branch doctrine that has been adopted by – a number of presidents. And basically what it means is close immediate advisors to the president or former close immediate advisors like a White House counsel don't have to show up at such a hearing, even if they're subpoenaed. That's sort of what it means. So as I said, you know, a, a lot of presidents have have used this this doctrine, but it's never really been adjudicated all the way through the courts. The one court that did look at this testimonial immunity issue was back in 2008. That was John Bates of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. He roundly rejected this theory uh, at that time as being without any support in case law. And so, you know, I think the question for the committee and for, you know, House Democrats is, what do they do with this? It's possible that they will say, okay, you know, this testimonial immunity thing doesn't seem 
to be very much of anything, and so we're going to take it to court. And I and I actually do think that if they did, they could very well get a quick kind of decision on it, because unlike sort of when you were talking about documents and information and executive privilege, those are all these sort of difficult issues to sort out. But this testimonial immunity thing is it's more discreet and could be addressed by the, by a court in, in fairly short order. Is that just before we move on to the other resistance that the administration is putting up? I mean, is this some kind of novel theory that the administration is kind of cooking up here in an effort to A, and they don't seem to really be all that bothered by the idea that these all might end up in court. I mean, so do you think this is sort of a delay tactic or are they trying to, you know, paint the Democrats as just rabid and willing to go to the ends of the earth to compel testimony and documents? So it's not something that this administration just cooked up. It has been something that's been part of, again, executive branch doctrine for a while. But you're right in that the approach this administration seems to be taking pretty much across the board is it's very it's really a stiff arming kind of an approach and so the question in my mind is are they putting up this testimonial immunity first then you know they'll litigate that if they lose on that then they'll turn to the executive privilege to limit what McGann can say or the documents he can provide so there's definitely an angle on this where you can see it being a way to really drag out all of these questions uh, and just take the most possible time uh, for them to be resolved through you know multiple court actions. Um, and we're seeing that in other other areas as well. Yeah. So talk about some of the other places too where the Congress is trying to get information and you know the administration is throwing up all these different – I guess, modes of resistance. So I'll cover two categories, basically. The first is these congressional subpoenas of third parties, meaning private companies. Uh, And there are two court cases that are currently in train in the courts on this issue. Uh, And this, by the way, this category does not involve the doctrine of executive privilege either, which is why we're seeing at least one of these cases move pretty quickly, I think. So the first case is here in D.C., uh, the House Oversight Committee Elijah Cummings is the chair, subpoenaed Trump's accounting firm, Mazars, for 10 years of Trump's financial information and and also some of his businesses. Trump then brought suit against Mazars and the committee to keep that from happening. And then this past Monday, uh, Judge Mehta, the D.C. District Court, ruled essentially that Trump's legal argument in the case that there's no legitimate legislative purpose for the committee to request these materials, that that argument basically has no merit. Uh, and that was not unexpected. It was very – all the reasoning f- very firmly rooted in su- existing Supreme Court precedent. What is a little unusual about it is how quickly Judge Mehta moved on issuing his decision. He sort of consolidated all of the procedural stuff and just moved it along really quickly. Just some people were expecting it was going to take a lot longer for this, right? In theory. And maybe I mean, the White House was kind of hoping for that. It's possible. But that's not how Judge Mehta wanted to handle it. He wanted to just get his opinion out. Trump did sort of immediately appeal that decision. So and the timeline for the appellate consideration is unknown. Mm, wait, there's a judge that sits on that appeals court. I'm blanking on his name right now. I don't want to steal <laughs> your punchline, but that judge Merrick. I Harlan. remember his yeah. name. Yes. <laughs> Although he will, he will, they don't think he will be on the motions panel that would actually hear this, just for the record. To clarify can he, that can he like get himself in there? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, even if he could, I doubt he, he would want to. <laughs> oh, a little bump the board type. Oh, how guy. the wheel turns. <laughs> Sorry, Margaret, continue. No, no worries. So there's a similar kind of case going on up in the Southern District of New York. 
similar types of issues. This is two different committees, uh, the Financial Services Committee and the Intelligence Committee, and it involves Deutsche Bank as well as Capital One, but same types of issues. The committees want these private banks to turn over the bank records for Trump and his three oldest children and various of his businesses. That oral argument uh, happened on Wednesday, and it'll be interesting to see if the district court, the the Judge Mehta opinion, sort of influences the opinion that will be issued in the Southern District of New York. So we'll see. So that's sort of one bucket. The the second bucket that I want to talk about is everyone who's been following the news is aware of this. The House Ways and Means Committee requested from the Treasury Department Trump's tax returns, basically. Uh, First, they did it you know, essentially pursuant to Section 6103 of the Internal Revenue Code, which is very clear that if the committee makes the request, the Treasury Department has to turn over the tax returns. The Treasury Department, Secretary Mnuchin, basically signaled that they were not going to do that. The committee then issued a subpoena to, you know, as a second avenue to try to force the Treasury Department to turn it over. Uh, Mnuchin, again, basically said no. Uh, Last Friday, in a one-page letter, sent to the committee basically said it's the same kind of reasoning that actually that that we we saw in the, these other the Mazars case and the Deutsche Bank case which is that there's no legitimate legislative purpose for these materials to be turned over to Congress which again is just very striking to me because you have a statutory requirement to turn it over uh, you have a subpoena and then this sort of it's almost like this argument seems to sort of come out of nowhere but right, really the legislative purpose argument you mean yeah, right yeah. and and but it's just striking because they're really positioning these arguments as separation of powers constitutional types of 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 arguments as opposed to saying which typically is what presidents say in the past is, okay, we recognize that you, Congress, have a legitimate legislative purpose or investigative purpose for requesting this information. We're, we're just going to assert executive privilege because we have our countervailing concerns. That's not what's going on here. And it seems like in the first gambit, the Trump administration is saying, no, 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 Congress, you like have you have no power. You just don't have any power in the Constitution to do any of this. Almost so, like as they're saying, like, if you're not actively trying to craft a bill, then you can't go around requesting information. Is that that's I mean, I'm trying to I've been struggling over the weeks to understand what their logic is in that. But it sort of seems like if you're not actively engaged in the process of lawmaking, you can't conduct oversight, which is not how oversight No, works. That, that's and not – And yes, they yeah. could be trying to craft a law to like make presidential candidates turn over their tax exactly. returns. So that's the thing. If you're looking for a congressional request that it's hard to tie to active legislation, although I agree you don't need that, this is not that Right, case. right. This is not – Because you can come right, up exactly. with like 50 examples of things <laughs> that they might be trying to do. Right. Or other governmental actions like right. impeachment. <laughs> yeah, right. that is a legislative action. Um, okay, sorry. Good <laughs> no, so that's that's basically sort of my two main buckets. I also just want to do a quick roundup of other interesting things going on in this space. So some fresh subpoenas were issued by the Judiciary Committee to Hope Hicks, who is the former White House Communications Director for and Donald Trump Whisperer, um, and also Annie Donaldson, who is the former Chief of Staff to the White House Counsel. Uh, she took notes. She took copious notes. That she, she's a real lawyer. She's a yeah. real lawyer, you guys. <laughs> or she works for one. <laughs> um, Quinta, let me ask you, you've written a lot about, you know, this issue of constitutional crisis slash constitutional rot. And the word is getting thrown around a lot when you see the executive simply just resisting or throwing up, you know, potentially, you know, uh, you know, fairly weak arguments about why it doesn't have to comply with the demand from Congress for information. Is that a constitutional crisis or are we sort of jumping 
you know, being, being a little too hyperbolic to describe this particular standoff as a crisis on that scale? I think that people are jumping to that term way too quickly. And we saw this, I want to say, two weeks ago when Jerry Nadler of the House Judiciary Committee basically declared that we were in constitutional crisis because the administration was refusing to hand over documents before a court even handed down a decision. And that just struck me as... I mean, it's, I guess it might be good rhetoric if you're trying to, you know, fire up the base, that kind of thing. But the clash between the branches is how the separation of powers is supposed to work. Margaret is obviously right in pointing out that the executive is being unusually aggressive in this case and is putting forward an argument that if you follow it to its logical endpoint, basically completely scraps Congress as an oversight body. But that fight in itself as a process is how it's supposed to work. And so arguing that the fight itself before you get to any outcome is, uh, you know, that we're on the point of crisis is just, I don't know what else to call it, but silly. Maybe if you got to a position where, you know, you have a bunch of court rulings and the executive refuses to comply with all of them, that would be a crisis. It's a sort of, it's a famously muddy term. I don't think we're there yet. I would also say that if you do believe this is a constitutional crisis, there's a great mechanism that Congress has to address that, and it's called impeachment. So it kind of seems to me like you can either say it's a crisis, in which case you sort of have to pull that tool out of your toolbox, or you can say it's not a crisis and carry on with business as usual, but you have to pick one of those options. You don't get to have both. This makes me think about you know who's playing the smarter politics in this, right? Is it Democrats or the administration. Democrats seem to be going, you know, escalating the rhetoric for sure. And using the word constitutional crisis now makes me think, okay, what happens when there actually is one? Like if a judge orders the administration to turn something over and it just says no. So do you think one side is sort of outplaying the other in, in this? Uh, I don't know if either one is outplaying it, but they're pl- both playing hardball and they yeah. both have a strategy here. You know, the White House's strategy is the Mueller report settled it. They did not reach the conclusion that any crimes were warranted. They had the opportunity to pursue this action. They chose not to. And digging past that is Congress just trying to stir up politics. There's no basis to push further than this two-year investigation that sapped up all these resources with which the attorney general said the president fully complied. That's their angle. That's their narrative. The Democratic narrative is the Mueller report raises lots and lots of questions. And we have a totally legitimate basis for following up on those and deciding on the separate legal remedy of impeachment or, in this case, various other oversight mechanisms that may be all happening under the shadow of potential impeachment one day. You know, which is smarter politics? it's going to be a war of attrition. It's going to be an effort to to gather the popular support that one party feels to, they need to either you know push forward with impeachment potentially at some point in a direction where they think they'll get enough political support or at least won't be politically damaging, where they may have enough popular support that at least historically it will resonate as a condemnation that will you know establish norms and establish practices and not be perceived as a partisan trick. And I think at least from the perspective of the Democratic leadership, they're not there yet. And this effort to push these investigations, build these conversations, have these high-profile conflicts where the executive branch and the Trump White House are refusing to share information and making these very broad arguments about why they don't have to be transparent, 
really is their way to try and make that case to the public slowly but surely. And I think there is a logic there. But who knows who's going to win at the end? They do have a little bit of a limited time frame. And there is could be a sense of urgency that declines as we get further from the Mueller report. I will say the one thing that really strikes me in all this is that when the attorney general said the reason why he concluded President Trump couldn't have been guilty of obstruction. He said, I accept, even though I don't agree with it, I'm going to accept Mueller's legal framework. Presumably that means he accepts his whole Article 2 issues and things like that. He's putting that aside. Just on the evidence, he said, well, the president cooperated fully with the Mueller investigation. Therefore, he couldn't have had the corrupt intent to do it in the first place. Question, you know, I think that's probably a bad reading of the Mueller report in the first place. I wrote a piece about this for Lawfare a few weeks ago. But here we're seeing that cooperation completely fade away. You couldn't see a starker contrast between the picture the attorney general painted and what the White House is doing today. I think that's a vulnerability for the White House in the long run. Um, and so I think it's, it's a dangerous strategy they're pursuing. But I'm guessing they're afraid what will happen if they don't pursue it. I would also say that I agree with everything Scott said. But I would also say that the idea that the sort of the ongoing congressional investigations and perhaps an impeachment inquiry are a natural follow on to the Mueller report isn't just a democratic narrative. Mueller wrote that in the report. It states very clearly in the report that Mueller decided not to reach a prosecution or declination decision as to whether Trump may have committed obstruction of justice under the Office of Legal Counsel memo that says that you can't indict a sitting president. And his reasoning, he points to the OLC opinion and the OLC opinion says, this immunity for the president does not place the president above the law because the House has the power of impeachment to hold him accountable. And Mueller specifically cites to the possibility of impeachment in the report. So it's not like the House is taking the report and just spinning up this rationale out of thin air to continue the investigation, which I think is what the administration has been arguing, I would argue that Mueller is explicitly passing them the baton and they're taking that up. I wouldn't disagree with that, except I will say Mueller also says conviction when they're removed after they exit office by whatever mechanism. So impeachment isn't the necessarily the only remedy, although certainly it's one he raises. Margaret, take the last word on this. You know, I just want to address something that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said just very recently. It was something along the lines of, um, you know, it's important that we not move to impeachment. We want to see how these court cases on like the Mazars case and these other cases sort of play out. And I've gotten a few questions from some quarters about like, what did she mean by that? Why is it important? Um, And my take on that is, you know, if you're Nancy Pelosi and you're trying to protect the prerogatives of the institution of Congress, you wouldn't want to set a precedent where, if you can't get uh, documents and testimony from the president of the executive branch at all, you just have to initiate impeachment proceedings because that would eviscerate their more fundamental almost uh, investigative power. And so I think that's sort of where she's coming from. She's looking for some favorable court uh, decisions that really solidify Congress's investigative power quite apart from the, the impeachment process. Okay. President Trump has made, I think we call it, fairly robust use of his executive pardon authority uh, in the past. Um, But we're getting word this week, Quinta, that he may be preparing to use pardons for service members accused of war crimes, including high-profile cases of murder, of attempted murder, and in one case, uh, the desecration of a corpse. We've seen him use the pardon both to get political allies out of a jam uh, and also he's been influenced by celebrities that he knows to take up cases that arguably perhaps do merit actually a pardon, although he doesn't go through the process. This I think is striking a lot of people as very different because 
It's involving military service members, some, you know, accused in this case of pretty awful crimes who have not fulfilled their sentence. But also it's the president kind of injecting himself into military justice, which is maybe a new take on this. Um, Talk about what we're seeing uh, here develop. So one of the things that I find really interesting about this is the military, former military officials have been really, to me, unexpectedly outspoken against this action, which is interesting because the president, at least, and his allies have been kind of portraying it as a, you know, supporting the troops thing. Reportedly, he is planning to issue these pardons on Memorial Day. And various senior military officials have basically come forward and said, you know, this is this is not honoring the troops. This is not appropriate. This is, a, you know, an insult to all the members of the military who don't commit war crimes. And the other interesting piece of the puzzle is that previously, definitely most, possibly all of the president's previous pardons and commutations have gone around the existing administrative structure for dispensing pardons in the Justice Department. So usually, pardons go through the office of the pardon attorney within the Justice Department. They prepare the paperwork. They get everything ready. The president signs it. Off you go. What Trump has done is basically done it completely on his own. So the pardon of uh, former Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio, for example, did not go through the office of the pardon attorney. That I have found interesting. And so far as it's sort of a demonstration of, you know, he's breaking norms and also how he sees the pardon power as something that's very, a very personal ex- sort of emotive, expressive tool rather than an administrative function. In this instance, therefore, I find it really interesting that he is going through the Justice Department. And you can raise a lot of interesting questions from that. You know, you can say, well, on the one hand, he's going through the Justice Department. He's, you know, letting them weigh in. That's a good thing. On the other hand, I do wonder if you end up in a situation where he goes through the Justice Department and the Justice Department eventually is perceived as giving its blessing, as signing off on these pardons of people who have been accused or in some cases convicted of just really incredibly horrible, brutal acts, that that gives additional sort of legitimacy and ballast to this action that members of the military have been really outspoken and condemning. An issue here seems too is that either for Scott or Margaret, I'm not aware of any cases where – I mean there may be people in these cases who are protesting not that they're innocent of the crime but that there were extenuating circumstances, right? Or that you know they felt maybe their lives were were threatened. But these aren't kind of the traditional pardons we're seeing for murder in which there emerges evidence that somebody legitimately did not do it or was, you know, was set up for – on a discriminatory basis, you know, prosecuted because they were African-American, something like that. And these are fairly recent uh, events as well. I mean I can't think of anything – that really, you know, um, is an analogous to what the president is doing in, in terms of the the severity of the crimes, and there not being any real case. I don't think that these people are innocent of them. So I, I think it's worth bearing in mind that these cases are pretty complicated and unique. And in a few cases, the people are actually asserting that they are not guilty. Uh, one of the most notable ones is the Gallagher case, the most recent. Uh, it's also one of the most horrendous, where this individual was accused by his fellow soldiers of targeting children uh, and you know, massacring their body, taking an oath of uh, recommitting himself to military service over the body of a young Afghan man, I think under 18, if I recall correctly. Really horrendous, but he does maintain he was not guilty of those. Like that he didn't and, do it. But he didn't do it. Okay. In a number of other cases, 
cases, people say we were under a situation of threat. So we have the case of Edward Slatton, who in 2007 was not actually in the U.S. military as a veteran. He was a guard for Blackwater in Iraq. And this is the famous Nisser Square incident where people claim, claiming they believe they came under attack ended up killing a number of Iraqi civilians uh, in pretty brutal circumstances. There are other cases where there have been administrative um, kind of hiccups. Uh, the most notable one here is probably the Marine snipers cases where a number of Marine snipers were caught on video urinating on the bodies of Afghans who had been killed. Um, the criminal action against um, a number of them under the UCMJ was thrown out in 2017, I believe, uh, maybe it was 2018, by a military court because they found a general had tried to intervene in the matter and impose stronger punishment against them in a way that's improper under the UCMJ. So, you know, I, I, I think it's important that we bear in mind that maybe you could see a case made that certain pardons could be along the lines of what we see in pardons in some of these cases. But you really need to make the case for that, why there's some sort of miscarriage of justice, why something about this actually makes it warranted the sort of action. Right now, we don't see that coming. Instead, we know that this appears to have been triggered by a Fox and Friends segment. And so without that sort of case, we should be very skeptical of them and they could be very damaging. And I think in particular, in light of the potential consequences of these pardons, in particular for you know how seriously the United States takes the law of armed conflict, makes the stakes even higher here. So in essence, sort of putting these pardons and pardon power almost on an international law plane or level, which Scott and I spent years together in the Office of the Legal Advisor at the State Department. And, you know, a lot of, of ink was spilled and, and sweat put into those types of international law norms, which Martin Dempsey, who's the former chairman of the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, had some good tweets um, responding to this. And he basically said, you know, absent evidence of innocence or injustice, the wholesale pardon of U.S. service members accused of war crimes signals our troops and allies that we don't take the law of armed conflict seriously. And then he says, bad message, bad precedent, abdication of moral responsibility, risk to us. And this is the whole point about the law of armed conflict is that it helps us. It helps our soldiers when they are, are out there fighting uh, for us. I think that's right. And, uh, and all I would add to that is that we actually have an explicit treaty obligation to enact legislation that applies to these crimes and to investigate them under the Geneva Conventions. They're called grave breaches. Not all of these crimes qualify as grave breaches, but a number of them through. Certainly the Gallagher crime, crimes where you're targeting protected individual civilians um, will qualify for that. Uh, and it is really problematic to see that treaty obligation, something that's pretty sacrosanct, violated. The United States has always argued we enacted a war crimes act to satisfy the obligation to enact laws that cover those crimes. We actually always use the UCMJ. We never use the war crimes act to actually prosecute anyone. We always say our UCMJ lets us you know, prosecute our own service members for war crimes. Pardon isn't built into the Geneva Convention system. So it really would be an exception without a really exceptional case to the world as to why it's justified, which is why that's so important. Uh, and it's also a big argument around things like the ICC. We always say we don't need the ICC to go intervene in Afghanistan or other places because we have an effective system of military justice. And without a strong case for these sorts of actions, this would be throwing that out the window. So I would say that one of the interesting things about the pardon power is I've always understood it is that it's sort of explicitly designed as a whatever you want to call it, a hole in the law, an exception to the law, that the whole point is that the president is able to kind of take a step back from the justice system and dispense mercy. Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers has this wonderful phrase about 
how there needs to be easy access to exceptions in uh, in favor of unfortunate guilt. So, which unfortunate guilt is a really interesting idea. But setting that aside, the whole point is that there is this built-in exception to the criminal code, and that's the pardon power. And usually we think of that as being there so that the president can dispense mercy to people who were victims of injustice or, you know, to bring about um, healing as a society in case of Jimmy Carter's pardon of draft dodgers. And what's interesting about Trump's use of the pardon power is that he, to me, seems to sort of take that idea of the pardon as a whole in the law and focus on that. So the pardon of Arpaio, for example, Arpaio was convicted of contempt of court for basically refusing to stop racially profiling people following a court order. And at the time, people understood that pardon as a sort of a way of giving a finger to the courts. And there was a lot of discussion, you know, is this even constitutional? Setting that argument aside, it does seem to me that, as Scott and Margaret have said, this is kind of taking that same use of the pardon to signal disrespect for the rule of law itself and extending that on an international scale. So it's it's completely consistent with how we've seen Trump use the pardon in the past, but bring it onto the international stage, as Scott and Margaret say, brings in all these new complications. And it seems to me sort of magnifies the existing problem in, in new ways and different dimensions. And I wonder, too, if, it, if by doing this, he's going to it's going to make the future president less likely to use a pardon in a case of a military service member who might actually be deserving of one if our allies look at this and think that this is a big middle finger to them. And in Trump doing what I think he believes is trying to, in his mind, support the troops uh, because they've been through terrible things and we've asked them to sacrifice so much and risk their lives. Uh, and he's been persuaded that these are unjust cases. If a future president faced with a real case of injustice might say, you know what, I'm going to think twice about doing this because of what happened when President Trump did it. And the message that he sent, if that future president was, for instance, trying to repair the impression that we have respect for the rule of law and law of armed conflict uh, in the eyes of our allies. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and this idea of supporting the troops, you know, I think one of the most astounding parts of that Quinta kind of mentioned in opening is the reaction of a lot of military service members, which is that we're worried about command discipline. We're worried about setting clear rules for our soldiers. And we do not do them any favors when we open up these – create or create the appearances of these doors that can lead to unethical, illegal, or self-destructive behavior or behavior that's destructive for other people. And the other audience we really do have to bear in mind are, are not just our foreign allies, but the civilians in these places where we have been in armed conflict for a long time. Uh, well, the hardest parts of a job, my former job in government was being in Iraq and dealing with the family members and individuals who had been harmed as a result of U.S. military activity in ways that were consistent with the law of armed conflict. But those are wounds that hadn't healed in that case, in some case, for people who have been there in that situation for a decade or more. But at least the one thing you could say is in those cases is that there was engagement. We recognized the situations of wrong. There was a process for trying and addressing them. Here, that process is being abandoned. Uh, and I think we already started seeing reactions about what that could mean. We saw a rocket um, thrown at the green zone in Iraq a few days ago. And the group that ultimately claimed credit for that attack, although I understand there's some questioning as to whether it was they were actually the ones who executed it. Um, but my understanding Understanding that they said it was in response to the initial pardon of Behenna, um, who was accused of having killed an Iraqi national. Uh, and we may see additional actions which could have real ramifications given the tensions in the Middle East and particularly in Iraq regarding our relationship with the Iranians right now. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. We all have objects today. Everybody brought something to share for class. Uh, Quinta, do you want to go first? 
Sure. My object is an indictment of everyone's favorite lawyer, Michael Avenatti. <laughs> Wasn't Michael Avenatti already indicted, you ask? <laughs> Why, yes, he was. This is, I believe, the third set of criminal charges against Avenatti. He may have lost track himself at yes. this point. Yes. So he was charged with trying to extort Nike. That was before. He was also charged with wire fraud, I believe, in California. And now federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York have charged him with stealing money from his former client, Stormy Daniels. So I just want to say there was discussion for a while that this man would be the Democratic nominee for president of the United States. And I am glad that we dodged that bullet. Quinta, he just flew too close to the sun. He's Icarus. Yeah. (laughs) Guessing he's not holding out for a pardon. Um, You never know, man. You never know, this guy. Uh, Margaret, what's your object? So mine is super depressing, but I think important. And I don't know when I'm going to be back on rational security. So I have to do do the thing that is most important to me. Um, This is inspired by my daughter who's in eighth grade, and she's giving a speech in her science class today. Uh, on climate change. And so this is sort of what her speech is about. Um, so my object is the Antarctic ice sheet. And, you know, we're, we're lawyers and legal type people here, and we spend so much time in details. I thought it was important to telescope out a little bit, even to the whole Earth. So Antarctic ice sheet is fantastic. It is 5.4 million square miles, which is roughly the size of the United States and Mexico combined. It contains 7.2 million cubic miles of ice, which is a very large amount of ice. If the entire Antarctic ice sheet melted, sea level worldwide would rise by about 200 feet. Good news, spoiler alert, that would probably take thousands of years to actually happen. Not all at once, okay. (laughs) Um, But there is a new study being reported this week that suggests that as the Earth is warming and these these ice sheets continue to melt, the seas could submerge really vast swaths of land and displace almost 200 million people by the end of this century. Sea level rise could plausibly be about seven and a half feet under this new study by 2100. Um, And that would put New York, New Orleans, Miami, Shanghai, and Mumbai in a permanent flood situation. So this this new report out this week is a little different from past reports, and it's a little more dire. So that is my object lesson, and now my eighth grader will be very proud of me. She couldn't just do, like, baking soda and vinegar volcanoes? (laughs) That was last semester. Okay. She's growing up now. (laughs) She's taking on real problems. She's moving on to the existential threats. Whoa. Okay. Uh, Scott, what's your object? (laughs) Uh, Well, speaking of melting ice, uh, on Sunday, people may have noticed we ended an eight-year kind of campaign uh, with the end of A Song of Ice and Fire series or Game of Thrones on HBO. I liked my ice melting transition. I liked that. There was no way we were getting through this podcast without talking about the Game of Thrones. Exactly. There are no Um, dragons on the Antarctic ice (laughs) (laughs) That we know of, yeah. (laughs) Uh, The uh, show, if anybody watched it, I watched it for many years. I thought it took a bit of a downward turn. Uh, the wheels were broken on Sunday, which was the big thing. The phrase that uh, Daenerys has always been pushing for, but so were our hearts, uh, by a closing oh, episode God. that I thought was very disappointing. But what I've been encouraging people who really want to know 
I, I want a, a redo of this story is that we have a redo coming and that the book series still has a couple more episodes coming. And a lot of people, though, find it a little daunting to wade through the thousand pages, many thousands of pages of books that are already there, let alone the few thousand more that supposedly are coming from George R.R. Martin. So I've been encouraging people to go back to what I think is the best way to actually consume the entire book series and story and saga, and that is the audiobooks uh, oh. that were recorded by Roy DeTrice, a very well-known British stage actor, I believe, maybe stage and film, before his untimely death in 2017. They're amazing. He does this amazing theatrical performances of these books. They last for hours and hours and hours, um, which is wonderful if you have a lot of time to kill. So I think I'm going to break back into them to try and refresh myself in hopes of that new book finally coming out and us getting a new and improved ending to the saga. I will warn people, the only downside is that the last book that came out in 2011, of course, there was like an eight-year hiatus before it came out. And unfortunately, Mr. Detrice did forget how he pronounced everyone's names between recording <laughs> the fourth and the fifth edition. So you are in for a little bit of a, of a transition there in terms of everyone's names sound different. But if you can get past that after a couple hours, it does lock in. Uh, and it's totally worth listening to. So I encourage you all to go there uh, to like, audible.com where you like can download them. Sarsi instead of Cersei? Or... Yeah, precisely. Oh, my <laughs> See, that, God. That's an Tired to Peter hazard. is the one that's really, really <laughs> hard to get past, this, but it's doable. This is the problem with fantasy oh, novels when so you just start good. adding extra vowels. Yes. No one knows how to say it. And abusing the letter Y. That is George R. R. Martin's signature move, but I wonder if George R. R. Martin actually was, this is all a big like game on his part. He was like, oh, I'll let you finish first, because you're going to screw it up, and then I'm going to come in and make everyone happy. Exactly. You know, he has that shot now. Um, <laughs> all right, before my object, I just wanted to uh, re-flag for people, because we noted last week that Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy's new book on making the presidency Donald Trump's war on the world's most powerful office was on Amazon. I don't think it actually was on Amazon when we told you about it, but it is there now. So you can go pre-order that. Check that out. Uh, my object this week uh, actually comes to us via a uh, Twitter follower, at Cabin13, who goes by Stephen. Uh, and people will remember that a few weeks ago, uh, for our band name, I suggested Bill Barr form a punk band called Assert This. Um, and Stephen found, by which I mean made, um, the album cover, you guys. Check this out. Oh, that's excellent. Wow. It is Bill Barr with a full-on, I think it's a purple mohawk. Wow. That's that's something. With Jerry Nadler in the back, (laughs) and it looks like a straight-up punk album cover, and I could not be more delighted, and this is further evidence. We have the best damn listeners on the (laughs) internet. So thank you, Stephen. That was great. Uh, and that brings us to the end of the podcast, you guys. Special Lawfare Edition. Um, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at the lawfare at lawfareblog.com, not thelawfareblog.com. Uh, and you can find hats, cups, merchandise at thelawfarestore.com, I believe. Did I get it right? I actually have no idea. Ah! <laughs> this can, is a, I'm going to confess this right that. now. That's right. I, it's a running joke. I got I got it right this week, but I'll screw it up when Ben's here next week. You can follow us on uh, Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave us a nice rating and review and don't talk about my transitions. Our audio this engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Music this week by Dom McGann and his luau band, Huawei Five O. Ooh. Good. Nice. Like you like that? that? Yeah. I like That's that. That's a good one. He has, good. he has the hair for it. He does have the <laughs> hair for it. He would totally be in a Hawaiian suit. I think he band. is in a rock band. This is perfect. Sophia Yang can actually do keyboards for <laughs> There you it. go. Very good. You're welcome, Sophia. On behalf of my good friends, Quinta Dressick, Scott Anderson, and Margaret Taylor, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you in two weeks. Have a great Memorial Day, everybody. Bye-bye.
Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.